Let's open to Titus 3 one more time. Titus 3. Verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, as this text says, the goodness and the kindness of your nature that came to us in a person and laid down his life to atone for our sin and rose from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that we're gathered here this morning as recipients of that, to rejoice over that, to rehearse that, to glory in that, and then to be sent by that. So walk us through this time. Um, clear distractions, set aside fears, anxieties, um, break idols, and um, and reignite faith in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you the main point of this text, and consequently the main point of my sermon from the get-go this morning. It's summed up in three words. He saved us. And if you're wondering why I'm wording it like that, it's because those words come directly from our text in verse 5 specifically. Now, verses 4 through 7 compose one long, overwhelming, 71-word sentence in English But it's a sentence that's super easy to break down into short phrases without knowing a single thing about the original language. And I'm going to challenge you, if you journal or if you use some kind of a highlighting system in your Bible reading, I want to challenge you to do stuff like what we're about to do on your own with your English text because it will help you organize these really long, otherwise complex sentences. So we're going to take some time this morning. We're going to read it again. We're going to read it slowly, phrase by phrase, and hopefully bring to the surface the one complete thought, main verb of the sentence that I've already noted as the main point of my sermon. And I'm just saying it from the outset this morning. This is going to be Utterly awful for people to listen to on our website without being able to track with us visually because we have some slides this morning. And frankly, it may be utterly awful for you to track with here in the room. Who knows? Not promising anything other than that the Spirit will speak through His Word and He will perform sanctifying miracles in your heart and perhaps even in some of you perform the miracle of regeneration for the salvation of your soul. So when I say I'm not promising anything, it's the human performance side of things that I make no guarantees on. So let's go back to verse 4. The sentence begins with the word, but. But. And I want you to just set aside that, that word, 
for a few moments, mainly because Paul sets it aside for a few moments. And what he does following that contrasting word is he inserts a bunch of other phrases here, subordinate phrases here, before he comes back to it and completes the thought that that word originally began. So this is where you're going to have to track with me. Most helpful if you do so visually up on the screen. It may bore the socks off you this morning, but I do trust that by the end it will make sense and you will be helped by it. So, first word, but. And if you're thinking organizationally, you should be thinking, but, like I have it on the screen, comma. But, comma, subordinate phrase number one. When the kindness of God, our Savior, appears. So here's what I do. This is what I do in all my prep process throughout the week. And all I'm doing for a significant portion of this morning is walking you through the process that I go through to come to a point where I think I understand a text enough to begin to write a sermon to teach it to you all. And the process of walking through it this week was so helpful to me that I thought it would be beneficial to take like, a significant time this morning and walk you through what I do. So here's what I do. When I see an organization like this, here's what I do. On a separate piece of paper, I put down the word, but, dot, 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 which tells me he's going to come back to that, but he's setting it aside, but, dot, 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 comma, subordinate, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, comma, clearly not the main thought. That sentence can't stand on its own. It's not a complete thought, so it's obviously going to be subordinate to something else. And the something else that it is subordinate to comes next in your text. But since I love suspense, I want you to skip the next three words for now, if you have an ESV or a CSB, and I want you to continue on into verse 5, because it not only contains the main verb, in those three words, and the main point in those three words, that right now we're just pretending we don't see. But verse 5 is also loaded with five more subordinate, incomplete phrases that coordinate two by two with a fifth that's tucked under there that's subordinate to one of those four subordinate phrases. And I don't expect you to track with all that. But I do expect you to track with it once I put it up on the screen. So let me just show you what all of that means. Here are two phrases in verse 5 that coordinate with each other. Not from works of righteousness, but according to mercy. Now that is not only not a complete thought, but there's not even a verb there. So as theologically significant as those two phrases are, they, as they ultimately contribute to our understanding of justification by faith alone, they are not the main point of the sentence. They are, like the previous one to it, they are subordinate to something else. So again, visually, here's how I process that. But... When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, not from works of righteousness, and then tucked in there, there's that other phrase that clarifies the not from works of righteousness. So we have, but when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, not from works of righteousness, works of righteousness, which 
we have done. But according to his own mercy. Okay. So far, so good. As we keep reading, there's another set of two that coordinates in a very similar way as the previous two. Those words are through or by the washing of regeneration. And I'm just adding the words for clarification. And through or by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let's just update what this looks like. We've got but all the way to the left. It began the main thought. And he's not returning yet to the main thought, so we're leaving nothing else to the left. We have but, subordinate to that, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Not from works of righteousness, clarifying, works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy, through or by the washing of regeneration, and through or by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and the, ES, the CSB here does what the ESV does all over the place, and it drives me crazy because they stick a period where it doesn't belong, and they start a new sentence in verse 6. When verse 6 is, like almost everything else before it, except for three words, subordinate. So, by the washing of regeneration, and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom... He's not starting over there with a new main verb or a new main emphasis. He's still explaining. He's still clarifying. He's still developing the singular main emphasis of this massive sentence, just like everything else so far. So by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal, and just for clarification's sake, both of which. So the washing of regeneration and the washing of renewal happened and happen how? By the person of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. And while we're at it, we can just include the next phrase in there, because the next phrase clarifies the pouring out of the Spirit, and it brings in our text the full Trinitarian display of our our salvation interview in just a few short words. So he says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God the Father, he is the he of verse 6 who pours out the Spirit, God the Spirit upon us. And he does so here through the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here's what we have so far. Organizationally, organizationally, we have, but, setting that aside, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, not from works of righteousness, works of righteousness which we have done, because it was a work of righteousness, so it's clarifying, but it wasn't a work of righteousness that we had done, but according to mercy, by, because I like it better than through, so by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom he, the Father, poured out on us richly through the Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. And it's about this time that we really do finally need to come back to the main thought that picks up the thought that began this sentence with the word but back in verse 
four. And, and you know, you know what it is. I, I stated it at the beginning. It's the main point. It's the main verb. You saw it in the text, and I asked you to skip over it for a few minutes while we organized everything that falls under it so that we might increase the suspense of it and even more so feel the punch of it even harder when it finally comes. So let me read through what we have one more time and reinsert the main verb. But... When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, not from works of righteousness, works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom the Father poured out on us richly through the Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, the only question, brothers and sisters, that we have failed to answer so far this morning is the question, what? And by now, we should be dying to ask the question, what? We should be dying to say, but what, Paul? You've told us when. When the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. You've told us why. Not from works of righteousness. Works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to mercy. You've told us how. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Spirit, you've even told us who. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father poured out on us richly through the Son. But by now we're dying to ask the question, what? What does all of this explain? What's the main thought under which all of this incredibility falls or of which all of this incredibility explains? But what, Paul, and his answer does not disappoint us at all. There it is. But he saved us. It's the one thought in this massive sentence that can actually stand on its own and process everything else in all of these incredible subordinate phrases under it. It's the one thought. And it sounds like I have a bone to pick with the ESV and the CSB, but I, I have to point out that those three awesome words are found in either your ESV or your CSB frustratingly at the beginning of verse 5. And I think I know why they stuck it there. I think they stuck it there, my guess is at least, to bring the main point that's in those three words more to the forefront of this massive sentence so that the main point doesn't get swallowed up in the middle of all of these phrases. But what I want to say is it belongs in the middle of it. In other words, it's already in the middle of it as far as word order goes. So don't move it to the front trying to be more helpful because in doing so, I think we miss out on a literary point that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul, who is the human author, using literary devices to communicate incredible truth to us as he puts it dead center in the sentence. Dead center in the sentence, surrounded by Four subordinate, clarifying, explanatory phrases before it, and four clarifying, explanatory, subordinate sentences, phrases after it. So, not like this. 
But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, then everything falls under it. That's true. But visually, here's what it looks like. And there's a point in that, what it looks like. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, one, that's when, not from works of righteousness, works of righteousness which we have done, but according to mercy, that's why. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Spirit, that's how. The Holy Spirit whom the Father poured out on us richly through the Son, that's who. And right there, dead center in the middle is what? The main point. But he saved us. And it's at this point that I'm done with slides for a while at least. Because that is the visual that I want you to see this morning. Dead center in the text for emphasis. And dead center to our theology. Is this short three word sentence. He saved us. You can say it a number of different ways, and I would encourage you to often say it a number of different ways because they're all true. You could say, He saved us. Emphasizing the wonder of it all. You could say, He saved us. Emphasizing the appropriate order of it all. Or you could ask rhetorically, He saved us? Emphasizing the humility of it all. But if you're going to stay most closely tied to our text this morning, you're going to have to keep that important conjunction that began this long sentence tied to those three amazing words. He saved us, leaving the main sentence as, but he saved us. So it's actually a fourth totally legitimate way of reading this short main sentence, and it is the most true to our text. Now, the fact that the sentence begins with a conjunction that's designed not to coordinate. So we, talk, we saw two phrases with a coordinating conjunction, the and. It's not this. The fact that this sentence begins with a conjunction that's designed not to coordinate two thoughts, but to contrast two thoughts tells us that we can't rightly process the punch of but he saved us without glancing back for a moment at what it's meant to contrast. So let's remind ourselves briefly of verses 1 through 3, which began with the command to remind them. Remind who? The answer is all the people that he was addressing in chapter 2. Older men, older women, young men, young women, bondservants. In other words, everybody in the church, young, old, male, female, bound, free. Remind them of what? In the text, here's the list. Be submissive, be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, my question is, why these things? He's obviously not being exhaustive here in this list of everything that would have these people remember. No list is ever exhaustive. All lists are always contextual. And always they're, they're, 
They're always circumstantial. So why these things here? And the answer is found way back in chapter 1, where Paul revealed that there was a false gospel being proclaimed in the church by people that Paul describes by the very opposite character and actions to which he's calling the true believers here. It's literally almost a one-for-one correspondence between what he says ought to be on display in those whom God has, in fact, mercifully, miraculously saved, and what is on display in those whom he indicts. In chapter 1 and verse 16, as professing to know God, but in works denying him. So let me just walk you through that. Those whose character and actions betray the legitimacy of their profession are, according to chapter 1 and verse 10, insubordinate. Which corresponds to Paul's charge to Titus to remind the true believers in Crete to be what? Submissive to rulers and authorities. Furthermore, as in those whose profession was empty, according to chapter 1 and verse 10, they are empty talkers and deceivers. They're liars, according to chapter 1 and verse 12. All of that corresponds to Paul's command to Titus to remind the believers there to speak evil of no one. They, according to chapter 1 and verse 16, are disobedient, which corresponds to Paul's charge to Titus to remind those in the church to be what? Obedient. They, again, according to chapter 1 and verse 16, are unfit for any good work. And to what does Paul charge Titus to call the believers under his care? Chapter 3, verse 1, to be ready for every good work. The one-to-one correspondence is just obvious and striking. And those are just a few examples. You could go on and on. And I won't because I think I'm losing my voice. Now, before you think Paul is merely trying to one-up or outdo or morally distinguish the believers in Crete from those who profess with their mouths but deny by their works, let me explain that again. In other words, before you think Paul is merely trying to say, come on, guys. We can do better than them. We can be better than them or don't be like them. He tells us plainly his reasoning behind everything he's just said in chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, in effect, I'm saying this not because we are better than them or to push you to work harder than them, or try to outdo them so that you stand out from them. He says, in effect, I'm saying this rather because we were them. We were them. And outside of the miracle of mercy contained in the short three-word sentence, He saved us, we would still be them. We would still be insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, preaching just like them, following just like them, whatever false gospel resulted in the greatest shameful gain, as Paul terms it. We would be liars 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons, with defiled consciences, professing to know God, but denying him in our works, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any legitimately good work. And if you haven't come to grips with that description of you before and outside of Christ and the miracle of he saved us, I don't know if those three words apply to you this morning. And frankly, this is where the labor at the beginning to pull out and identify all of those short, subordinate phrases really pays off because we suddenly realize that what he's doing is not calling these believers to just work harder than others or set a higher standard than others there. It's not about work to Paul. It's not about high standards to Paul. He's reminding them that what ultimately distinguishes them or you or me or us to make it applicable, what ultimately distinguishes us from those whose profession is empty, as is evidenced by their works, is a miracle that we call salvation. He saved us. And as we now have this visual of what that all means, we realize that he saved us is not only a miracle in and of itself on the front end, but it's a miracle that continues to bear miraculous, life-changing, transforming fruit for the rest of our lives. You didn't save you, and you're not the one changing you. He didn't do the miracle in you on the front end and then leave the rest to you. So how do you think it happened on the front end? And how do you think it happens every day of your life? It's not you. You can see it right here in the way that we've organized the text. He saved us is the whole package. It's not just the front end, although the subordinate phrases under it make crystal clear that he is, in fact, attributing the front end to him alone. And we'll see when we close with verse 7 that he attributes the back end to himself as well, but we see in the structure up there that he also attributes the entire middle to him as well by means of the same miraculous work of the Spirit who again was sent by the Father through the work of the Son. And this is how he saves us from beginning to end. So in calling them to the character and the actions that he calls them to, he's saying, this is what salvation looks like. This is the ongoing miracle that is the inseparable continuation of the first miracle in you. And that language, first miracle, ongoing miracle, both attributed to the Spirit, who is sent by the Father through the Son, is captured perfectly in the two coordinating phrases in our text that answer the question, how? We were them, and we are them outside of, but he saved us. And because we not only contributed nothing to he saved us, but on the contrary, we brought, according to verse 3, foolishness, disobedience, 
a willingness to follow every other gospel that promised us shameful gain, as well as a slavery to all kinds of passions and pleasures, passing our days in willful malice and envy, being hated by others and hating one another because we brought all of that to the equation not to lay it down willfully before God because His plan seemed to us in our natural state so utterly appealing. We brought all of that rather willfully against His plan to save us that in our foolishness and in our disobedience and in our willingness to follow any other gospel than the one that would change us from the inside out. We brought all of verse 3 and more to the equation not to lay it humbly down before his gospel so that he might somehow respond to us and save us. We brought it all as arms of resistance to his gospel that to us at the time before the miracle was utter foolishness. So when we ask the question, how? How then did he save us if we didn't somehow cooperate with him or contribute in some way? And the two phrases here that we've identified that answer the question, how, proclaim that it happened on the front end and it continues to happen in life by the miraculous work of God the Holy Spirit who was sent by God the Father for this very purpose through the finished work accomplished by God the Son in his death on the cross and in his resurrection resurrection from the dead and the front end miracle of the spirit that we've been talking about continues in the daily miraculous work of the spirit is captured in these two phrases by the washing of regeneration front end and by the washing of the ongoing renewal he saved us how by the washing of of regeneration and by the washing of the ongoing renewal of the Spirit. In those two phrases, we find the first miracle, regeneration, the ongoing miracle, renewal. So we were them. But He, by mercy, saved us. And the way his saving mercy came to us was first, don't forget it, according to verse 4, it's the when. The way his saving mercy came to us was first, when the goodness and kindness actually showed up in person on earth in Jesus, who lived in our place, who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, and then who laid down his life in our place and, and, and atoned as the righteous one, atoned for all of our unrighteousnesses when he died upon the cross. Only to rise from the dead victorious over the last enemy, which 1 Corinthians 15 says is death. And by all of that, he alone accomplished our salvation. That's when it happened. And it happened according to the will of the Father from eternity past. But that eternal plan of the Father and that full, perfect, accomplished work of the Son is applied to us for our salvation in real life, in space and time. In this text, by the Father pouring out the Spirit upon us first for our regeneration on the front end and for our ongoing renewal in life. 
remember, of the Holy Spirit applies to both the front end washing of regeneration and the ongoing daily washing of renewal. The Father poured out the Spirit upon us to begin the work in regeneration and the Spirit that the Father poured out remains poured out on us to continue the miracle all the way to the end in our renewal. And if you want the Old Testament imagery where Paul is getting this washing of regeneration and washing of renewal from, here it is. It's Ezekiel 36. A new covenant promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and he'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. I love what Gordon Fee says regarding this text because I think it captures the divine miracle emphasis I've been trying to show this morning. He calls this text, listen, he calls this text not the divine response to our faith as many people like to portray regeneration and renewal wrongly. He calls this long sentence the divine response not to our faith but brothers and sisters to our human condition, rebellion. Betrayal, arms of resistance. So by the time we get to verse 7, we again are asking ourselves, why? And he kind of already answered this question just from a different angle earlier. So when we asked why in the sense of on what basis, and the answer was clear, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his own mercy. But this, this why that we've been led now through the text to ask is from the angle of for what goal or to what end, why? Why would he do all of this? Why would he save us? And verse 7 functions perfectly to give us the reason. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice something interesting. Notice that he brings justification by grace in here as if he had been talking about it the whole time. And he hasn't. And I think it's because he assumes we know that it is inseparable from the miracle of regeneration. I prefer to say it's the other side of that coin. Indivisible by time, yet still, if we're distinguishing cause and effect inseparable from the cause of the miraculous regenerating work of the Spirit is the effect on the other side of the coin of the faith by which we are justified, indivisible in time, yet distinguishable by cause and effect. And don't get your cause and effect reversed. So Paul just assumes that in highlighting the regenerating work of the Spirit, that we understand its inseparable effect, not cause, effect to be the faith by which we are justified. So that when our regenerated hearts, now alive with faith, assured of justification, ask the question that we've been led to ask, why? Why did he do this? He gives us the answer. And the answer is so that we would become 
heirs, we who were them and would be them outside the miracle. He did this for us so that we would become heirs that are alive not only with faith, but with hope as well, both in life and in death. And to close it down this morning, my hope in walking you through this text this morning is that its effect might be both humbling, being reminded that you contributed nothing but the contrast to the amazing main sentence, but he saved us. And that you would be filled by means of the ongoing miracle of the Spirit's renewal in you. That you would be filled with faith in the work of Christ and rich, abundant hope. That he will not only complete his miraculous work in you, but he will begin it and fulfill it to the end. The same miraculous work in your kids, in your friends, in your neighbors. And that out of that faith... And that hope that he's renewing in you, that this week you would go after them hard with the gospel. As Ephesians 6 instructs us, praying at all times in the spirit with all supplication and prayer, which is the end to which I will now pray. And I hope you join me. Let's pray. Lord, by your kindness, you've walked us through. You've led us to the end. Lord, you've led us through some laborious, difficult, um, technical work to try to get a visual on this really long sentence. And yet in your kindness, you, you wrote the text in such a way that it's possible. And Lord, hopefully, I trust, I believe because it's what you promised to do. I, I trust and pray that our hearts might be alive with faith. Some in regeneration this morning. That through hearing, not by works of righteousness, but everything to the contrary we brought. That the miracle of your regenerating work happened this morning in some. And that for the rest of us, the miracle continues. So that this morning, we leave alive with faith, alive with hope, not because we dug it up. But Lord, because you, through your word, by your spirit, as you do, always effected it for your glory. Father, may this grand, merciful, gospel. Reach those around us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.